Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Every year, millions of Americans are exposed to a contagious virus. What is this virus? It's stigma. Stigma promotes an environment of shame, fear, and silence, which prevents millions of people from seeking help. But there's good news. The National Alliance on Mental Illness believes stigma towards mental illness is 100% curable. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to curestigma.org and get tested for stigma. Good morning, good morning. Welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. Thank you so much for tuning in. I just got off the phone with uh, Dr. Kira O'Brien from the Penn Memory Center, and we were talking about Alzheimer's. Please check that show out. Really important information, particularly since African Americans are 14% of the people impacted, more so than Hispanic, more so than uh, whites. So please check that show out to get some information about symptoms, how it's treated, diagnoses, and so on. Um, but right now, right now, I have a wonderful author. I, I, he's a multi-talented, I think, musician, Afrofuturist guy. He's a professor. He's written several books. Uh, one of them, The Last Darkie, Burt Williams, uh, Black on Black Ministry and the African Diaspora. The Sound Culture, Diaspora and Black Technopoetics. Um, and now this his memoir, Floating in a Most Peculiar Way. And um, he is floating around, his character, if you will, himself, uh, floats around <laughs> this universe quite a bit. But he teaches at Boston University, directs the African American Studies Program, and is editor-in-chief of the journal The Black Scholar. He is also founder of the Sonic Art and Archival Project, Echolocution, and was a curator of Carnegie Hall's 2022 Festival of Afrofuturism. So it sounds like if you have any questions about Afrofuturism, this is the guy you want to talk to, and I think he's on the line right now. Good morning, Louis Chutes, okay? Good morning. How are you? How are you? I'm quite well, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> well, I mean, I had to. You got a lot of – I had to give you what they call now the flowers. I had to give you your flowers um, <laughs> because, you know, that's what the young people say. You have to give them the flowers. And, um, and uh, also I want to mention that some of his books have been translated to several different language, languages, Hungarian and Germany and so on. So uh, if you don't speak English, uh, he's still uh, you can and read his works. But um, this morning we're talking about you, uh, very intimate stories you told in this book. Were you scared to write this book? Um, it's funny. I wasn't scared to write it. I was a little scared after I wrote it, <laughs> because. <laughs> Because when you write the book, you're expressing yourself and you get into that energy, the vibe, and you want to, 
capture your past and express it to people. But once you get it done and you put it out, you might have a moment, as I did, when you say, oh, gosh, what have I done? I've exposed a whole lot about myself, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what about the family that you have still living uh, and friends? What did they think after they read it or heard about it? Well, it's, um, it made it clear that my anxieties were warranted. A lot of people were really stunned, but it's always that way because no one, you know, when you tell your perspective on things, it always surprises people because they have a different perspective or they don't even remember things, you know. So um, I have people who, after reading the book, they remembered those events, and they, but they didn't realize, for example, how much difficulty I was going through because they were busy mm. dealing with their own dramas, right? But, mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. but the bad part is I have members of the family who, because it is absolutely true, even though I changed their names, they're not embarrassed, but they can't talk to me anymore. Wow. Well, Yeah, because there's some things the... that were exposed. Yeah, definitely there was a lot of exposure here and, um, some parts it was interesting. I don't. I don't want to give away too much, but let's talk about your mom, because that yes. she had a huge impact on your life. What was that impact? Who was she? Tell the tell the audience about your mother. Well, you know, um, as is the case when you're a young child, your parents are your parents. You might not realize how epic and large were their contributions, especially if you're a young boy trying hard to be a man you tend to dismiss or not pay enough attention to the women in your life because you're so busy looking for male figures when you don't realize till you're much older, well, wait a minute, you know, your mother, your aunts, these female figures were just as big, in fact, bigger and broader than any man could have Mm. been, right? Mm. And so my mom, my mom was kind of a cultural hero. You know, she migrated from Jamaica to the to. England in the 50s, one of the ways that black people got to England after World War II was that they were brought in to work and help rebuild England after World War II. So it was black Mm -hmm. people were being shipped in, boated in to work as nurses, to work as street cleaners, bus conductors, basically rebuild British infrastructure. So that's how the whole generation of Caribbean people got to England and created black communities there. My mom was one of those early immigrants who went to the UK. Now, while she was there, she did something that Caribbean people never did. She started dating an African. Whoa, <laughs> uh, my father was no. from Nigeria. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and my father was from Nigeria, and he was there for military school because they had brought in a lot of Africans to teach them how to run governments and to be military because they knew that the, Brit- the British knew they were going to withdraw from the empire, but they wanted to set up their own Africans to keep things going. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so my mother married an African, and Africans didn't like West Indians. West Indians didn't like Africans. So they broke a lot of taboos, and within weeks of meeting him, she's in Nigeria. <laughs> oh, my God, so he hypnotized Ni- her. He hypnotized yep, exactly. her. I think that's what happened. You know, he hypnotized her because well, you know he. Go ahead, go ahead. Mm-hmm. No, no, you're right. He hypnotized her, and she hypnotized him. He'd never seen anything like that. 
So they so she goes back to Nigeria. It turns out that he is actually he turns out to be one of the leaders of a secessionist movement called the Biafra movement. Um, and the Biafra movement were the Eastern Nigerians, the Igbos, who after being massacred and uh, the initiation of a genocide by the Northern Nigerians, they pulled away and created their own country called Biafra. And it turned out that my father was one of the leaders of that Biafra movement. So she goes to Nigeria and suddenly she's the wife of a rebel secessionist leader in Eastern Nigeria fighting a war. Ethnic group of the men she married are being massacred by the thousands and the thousands and the thousands. And so she, that because sounds like she a was movie a nurse, to me. That sounds like a movie. Um, As a matter of fact, let me just stop you. Okay, when I read the book, you know what I thought? This needs to be a musical. Like, I thought about, like, Sun Ra type of musical, though. Okay? I, I wow. just want to tell you that. I, I just, I, I, I'm putting it out there. So if you do it, I need 10% of the proceeds. Okay? <laughs> I'm just telling you that. Well, All right? Anybody, anybody, anybody who picks this up will give you the credit, but also you have my support. I give the thumbs up. <laughs> So yeah, let's talk about your father now. He was this tall, light-skinned military man. And uh, in the book, you, this phrase, of, you are the first son of the first son. Talk to the audience, what does that, what does that mean? Um, I think you kind of said it a little bit there, but tell us a little bit more about your father. And the fact that he was light-skinned, that was very interesting as well. I, 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 you, you don't mention it only a few times, but I think it is very important considering colorism in Africa uh, uh, and, and as well as America. Well, the book even talks about how maybe one of the reasons that they, the family in Jamaica eventually began to warm up to him was that, A, he was light-skinned, right? Mm. And, B, mm. he was a leader of the movement. So for them, they just said, okay, he's a light-skinned African king. <laughs> okay, so we'll just them, put him in that, that category, right? <laughs> we put him in that category, exactly, exactly. But the mystery of his, you know, there was, there's, there's a whole question in the family, how did he turn out so light-skinned? Because there were no Europeans or whites in the family that anyone, you know, had ever known about tracing it back generations, right? But that had a lot to do, though, with how the Jamaicans would see him and the Caribbean side of the family. But he was, a bit, he was a war hero. In fact, the first son of the first son also means that he was the head of the clan. He was the family, mm. the leader of the clan. And it meant that his son, which is me, the first son of the first son, right, would also inherit the leadership of the family and the clan. So it's the story of someone who leaves Nigeria as a baby but travels through Jamaica, London, the United States with this thing in his head, first son of the first son, this kind of responsibility, but no real connection to a community that he could lead. And yeah. so that's what happens in the it, United States. Yeah, you really, as a child, uh, as a teenager, it's like you're constantly trying to figure out where you you know, what, what group do you belong to? And because your accent is, you know, they have this strange accent. No matter where you go, nobody believes you're part of this group or that group. And um, one of the cool things, though, your life in Jamaica, um, well, one of the interesting things, you didn't know you were leaving Jamaica. I thought that was interesting how they just 
there was this thing and you were like, oh, I'm going, I'm leaving Jamaica. Was, did anybody explain that to you later in life, why they never told you or forewarned you that you were coming to America? Well, no. Um, and for those of you, you know, when you read the book, you'll discover that, you know, as, as you're being told right now, I was basically just put on a plane. And when I got on the plane, I eventually just assumed, okay, I must be going to wherever my mother is. Because mm-hmm. I had been left in Jamaica to be raised by a Seventh-day Adventist family. Now, I've been told that, oh, one of the reasons we wanted you to come back, you know, um, one of the, they didn't tell me where we were going because they wanted me to come back from school during lunchtime, right, so they could take me to the airport. And they thought that by just telling me something important was happening, that would get me to come home rather than run around in the streets like we usually did. However, none of that explains why they never told me I was getting on a plane and going to America. And to this day, it's a mystery. I don't know why they never told me. They just threw me on a plane. And all of my cousins yeah. who came with me, they were traumatized. They were like, where's he going? Yeah, I love the chapter of the things I left behind. I was hoping that you would bring me a pack of sugar this morning because I, <laughs> I, really I really wanted to have a taste of, like, that particular sugar. Like, how is that different than the Jamaican sugar and so on? Because, you know, like you said, you can charge people money. This is a joke well, between Lewis then, and I. He knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will say, though, back then, you know, white sugar, unless we can get into the color thing, too, but processed mm-hmm. American white sugar was really an elite thing. So when we, we boys would steal some of that white processed American sugar, everybody had cane sugar and brown sugar, right? Or no yeah. sugar at all, <laughs> right? Because, you know, growing up in that time, sugar was a luxury. And so we yeah, would steal yeah. these little packs of white sugar, and we'd be able to sell them to the other kids in school, and they would line up for, for yards to get some of this sugar. <laughs> what about white bread? Was that the same for white bread do you, in Jamaica, or no? Is well, that, uh... not quite the same because they bake their own hard dough bread, which was kind of white bread. But it, it doesn't taste and feel like American bread at all, but they did make their own bread. Sugar, on the other hand, you know, the white sugar that we, as a kid, we just associated mm-hmm. it with America, especially because it came in these cute little bags. Yeah, yeah, very cute little bags. Now, you came to America, but um, the w- another cool part, the speech that your mom taught you about you not being black. Tell the audience about the speech she told you, it, like made you memorize. Well, a lot of this book is about also not just moving from culture to culture, but moving from one black culture to a very different kind of black culture to a very different kind of black culture to a very different kind of black culture. Mm-hmm. And, and Africans and immigrants don't always have the same definitions of blackness or black, right? So when we come to the United States, this, the scene you're talking about is when I get called the N-word for the first time. I'd never heard the word before, right? Yeah. And I took it to my family and I said, I don't know what it means, but the person who said it clearly seems to want to do me harm, <laughs> right? And the, the Africans and the Jamaicans start having arguments about what the word means, right? And the conclusion is, aha, they called you that because they made the mistake. They think you're an African-American. Mm. And so you have to remind them that, no, 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 you're not African-American. 
And so she gives me this speech that they had given my cousins, right, that whenever you get called that name or whenever you are mistaken for an African-American, you deliver this speech, right? I am not a slave. My mother was not a slave. My father was not a slave. We came to this country by choice, right? Mm-hmm. And that's the speech you're supposed to, 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 to respond with. And that chapter, of course, talks about what happens when I, I get the speech and then I go out into the schoolyards waiting to be called the N-word, and waiting, I describe the experience. Waiting, because you want to use this speech. Wait, that was, the, that yeah. was like, you were like, I can't wait. Somebody please call me the N-word so I can just say this exactly. speech. Please, 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 please. Come on, Which come a on, lot of somebody. People find, <laughs> a lot of people find that a very disturbing image, that here's a black guy looking for someone to call him that name so he could use the speech. But don't, you know, I try to remind people, these are kids. You were a kid. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, you were a kid. I mean... Come on, you got power in the words, and you, as a young reader, because you started reading very young, you were uh, writing poetry, you were uh, an intellectual, if you will, at a young age, you knew the power of words. So I I think it wasn't disturbing to me. It was like, as a kid, this is, you know, now you didn't know what was going to happen after you said it, you know, but exactly, um, exactly. You know, it, it, you knew the power in words, and um, you knew that it would have a big impact. And um, so, the, I, I didn't find it disturbing, really, for for, for me. Um, now, one of the other um, interesting parts is this: um, who is who, and what is what? Like, you know, who was black, who was not black? Yes. Even your mom mentions speaking French, even like down to not just the skin color, but your language, um, speaking French so that the white people know you're not one of them. Yes. You know, yes. Th- th- that's really so that the interesting. the white people know that you're, yeah, well, a lot of this book, again, speaking to black immigrants, a lot of whom you come and then your parents will say, well, look, they're thinking you're African-American and they're going to treat you badly because they don't, you know, because of racism towards African-Americans. So mm-hmm. it's important for you, if you want to succeed in America or to avoid the police, make sure they hear that you have an accent. Yeah. Make sure they know that you, are, you can speak French or you have a British accent or you have a Nigerian accent because that will save you. And it's actually in the context of American racism, as a kid growing up, a lot of us immigrants, it's true. Yeah. You just, mm. <laughs> just use the accent and then they go, okay, you're not one of them. Yeah, isn't that interesting? Yeah, exactly. So the book is really about different kinds of blacknesses and how they interact with each other, you know, and how we can, some some works in this sense and some don't work in this other context. Because the book is also being in Jamaica, thinking I'm trying to become a Jamaican when everybody's like, no, 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 you're an African. You're not one of us. Exactly. Yeah. You're the first son of the first son. Yeah, and then you come to America, and they're like, okay, you sound like a Jamaican. You're not one of us. So <laughs> much of the book is just back and forth, back and forth. For me, it's fascinating. You know, the world of black. I think it's very fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you talk yeah. about, you know, the African diaspora. That's something that you also um, hit upon later in the book. And what does that mean? And who who is under that umbrella? What issues exactly. are under that umbrella? And your view of the world versus your mother's view, like colonialism, and even the uncles and them talking about black people can't survive without white people, 
and and all these things because of their like entanglement, you know, almost like this, yes. um, you know, this because of racism. But one of the things I do want to bring up, because I'm a licensed social worker, I do want to bring this issue of child molestation. Now, yeah. you bring that up in the book, but you seem to talk very fast kind of over it. It just happens, and it seems like that's the normal thing, and, and, and people go on with their lives. Well, that's is part of the narrative, happened, right? Yeah. Is that what you think culturally happens, that people say, oh, this is just what happens, and you shouldn't make a big deal out of it? Or, oh, it well, happens see, no. and it impacts me? What, do, what, is, what is the context of child molestation in Jamaica, in Africa, as opposed to in America? How is it handled? What is the difference? Well, see, that's, that's, a, that's a very large question because one of the things yeah. that the story is trying to show is, don't forget, I'm a kid. And so I spent a lot of time trying to perfect the, the perspective of a child. And as a child, yeah. these are things that older cousins do to younger cousins. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And it doesn't occur to the child to tell about it or make it a big issue. It's just yeah. one of many things that happens to the young child, and then you move on. But it's not saying that, hey, get over it, it's no big deal. It's trying to okay. express that in the, as a child, that being thrown on a plane without knowing you're traveling, trauma of the Africans and people discovering their histories. There's so many layers of what we would call trauma that as a child, you just sort of pick it all up and process it and, uh, or maybe not process it. But the book doesn't dwell on it. But that's not to yeah. say that it's not worth dwelling on. Mhm mhm but it, but it, but I think like you said being a child because sometimes people always ask that, that question like well how come you never said anything you know or you know well, why did it take you so long to say something or and I think the explanation you just gave so much stuff happens to a human being when you're growing up um yeah. in particular you know you're you as a human being Lewis the different places you live the different people you were put with um, the different responsibilities that people kept telling you you had. So there's so many things that happen to us as humans. And, yes, I agree that, you know, maybe that's not the top of the list because, again, you're a child and you're trying to process, you know. Um, well, let me throw one thing into the mix, too. It's also uh, that doesn't it, – it actually just became an issue for me to think about after I wrote the book because it came up when I was writing it. Mm, see? <laughs> it was, it's something that had always happened. In, I mean, it happened and it was in my mind. But it's when you put it in the narrative and then you've written the narrative, you go, whoa, that's actually a pretty powerful thing and a pretty powerful and formative experience. But I, it doesn't get that gravity until you write it down. Till it's in black and white. Exactly, exactly. Till it's in black and white. Now, you are a bit of a nerd, um, Lewis. <laughs> A cool nerd. A cool nerd. A cool nerd. A blurred. You are a black nerd. We'll call you a blurred <laughs> because that's that word too. That's a word people use. You're into sci-fi, yeah, and you have this this David Bowie thing. And let me tell you, my parents took me to see the Man Who Fell Earth when I was a kid, and I was like freaked out. But I was in love with David Bowie. I'm jealous I, I, because was, I never got to see Bowie. It was ridiculous. It was crazy, and I'm gonna tell you that movie stuck with me like my entire life. Like, if anybody wow. said David Boy, I was like, oh, my God, the man who's on the earth. Like, I can picture the scene <laughs> in the back room. 
like got yeah. a picture of the scene in the bathroom, and then he married you. Oh yes! Like oh my god, I'm so jealous. Like what? The bathroom you know? scene. I remember the bathroom scene. The, the bathroom I... scene. Yes. See what my parents did to me. Oh my god. <laughs> but okay, but let me. You know they 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 um. So let me. The reason I'm bringing this up, people, is because um. Well, tell them why am I bringing up David Bowie? Uh, you tell them why I'm bringing up David Bowie. Well, the title of the book is from um, a David Bowie lyric, and every chapter of the book is named for a David Bowie lyric. The reason that mm-hmm. is, is that when I was in the refugee camps, before we went to Jamaica, when we left the Biafra war, the Biafra collapsed, my father was murdered, um, and we became refugees, and we were in a refugee camp. And according to my mother and my aunties, the first song that I ever heard, right, that ever ma- that would make me go to sleep, that I would always hum, that I just loved as a baby in the refugee camps in Gabon, was Space Oddity by David Bowie. And I didn't know it was David Bowie. My mother didn't know it was by David Bowie. They would just tell me, oh, that song about the spaceman floating up in space, and it goes <laughs> something like this, da-da-da-da. And so when I came to America finally, I thought, this is the place where I'm going to find out who this, that song is. Is that a dream? Yeah. Did it really happen? And one night in Washington, D.C., after I've arrived to the United States, you know, I'm watching television, and this weird, strange, alien-looking, skinny white man starts singing, and it's that song floating mm. in the most peculiar way. The lyric comes out, it's space oddity, and that, for me, my life changed. And so I had to give credit to Bowie for being this real touchstone because also listening to that music, you know, it was about science fiction, and so it kind of made me start reading books about space and aliens <laughs> and traveling in interstellar regions. And so I have to accredit that to David Bowie. Before Afrofuturism or Sun Ra, it was David Bowie was there first. Mm-hmm. Now let me ask you this. Uh, if you had a superpower, what would it be? If I had a superpower, what would it be? Oh, my goodness, that's such a tough thing. Uh, I would just, you know, my superpower would be what I've always dreamed of having as a superpower when I was a kid watching watching sci-fi. I want to be able to fly. Okay. Okay. I mean, it's a simple, straightforward one. I want to be able to fly, right, Mm -hmm. And which I guess is connected to floating. (laughs) But flying is different from floating. Floating means you're just kind of suspended. Yeah, but flying means you have more power to direct which direction you're going in. Floating, you just don't have a you you don't really have a choice. You're just kind of up there. So flying. Well, that's the that's that's the story. That's the story. You are floating. You did not have power about where you were going up until a certain point. You know that you were just being flung here or there. You know um, uh, throughout the storyline. Now, if you're going and to Mars, do you remember the cha- do you remember the, do you remember the, the title of the last sex chapter? Yes, the the the, you the man who the fell man to Earth. Mhm, mhm. <laughs> so that's the so, end of floating. Um, you get you get. <laughs> yeah, but you know they have the new series, right? The man who fell to Earth. Yes, I haven't have seen, seen it yet. Oh my God, you have not yet. seen it. Are you serious? I, oh my God, I got this. I, I can't I talk to you anymore. Issue. I got to hang up, Lois. I got to hang up. I'm sorry. Listen, I can't believe it. Took this. Me two years, it took me two years. It took me two years to watch Black Panther. <laughs> right. 
Uh, I have a man. thing that when 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 things are very close to to, to what to what I like and what I'm thinking and saying, I tend to yes. avoid them for a while. Well, I can understand that because you have what you envision in your mind it is, and then to see it, it may not be what you envision it to be. Um, exactly. And, 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 and so you could either be really completely disappointed um, about it. So I do understand that. I, I can understand that. But you gotta watch it, man. I'm oh, I'm gonna get there. Like, I'm gonna get there. Okay, okay, okay. So, all right. So now, if you're going to Mars, what three things are you gonna take with you when you go to Mars? Okay, um, some kind of music player, like a cell phone that allows me to have tons and tons of my favorite music. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Um, what else to Mars? Assuming that I have everything else that I need to survive, like a spacesuit and food and water, et cetera, I definitely yeah, have to have mm-hmm. music, right? A handful okay. of very important, handful of very important books, right? And mm-hmm. um, what's the third thing that I would take with me to Mars? Boy, this is a good question. Music, <laughs> handful of books, um, some photos of really important people in my life, like my mother, my father, it's, and et cetera. Mm, okay. Okay. That's good. That's good. Now, um, in terms of food, can you cook? Yes, I can. And what is your most popular dish? What, what is your best dish? Um, sweet and sour salmon. Ooh, Okay. And um, oh, yeah. My, is it just it, salmon? It, do you it, put it over rice? What, what, what do you eat it with? Um, I usually just, well, anything anyone, the family wants any, or any guests I'm cooking for. But I usually personally have it with vegetables. So the salmon okay. with either, with either um, broiled broccoli or cauliflower, any kind of mixed vegetables. But other mm-hmm. people like it with rice and stuff. I'm not a big fan of rice. So I tend to just okay. have the sweet and sour salmon with vegetables. It's fantastic. Mm, okay. Well, I might have to revoke your African card because you didn't say fufu or anything like that. I mean, I'm, I'm just a little concerned. Um, because I didn't say I don't know now. F- no, fufu. <laughs> oh, fufu. Okay. Here's the deal. When it comes to fufu or egusi or, mm-hmm. or in the Jamaican sense, you know, ackee and saltfish, I can cook them, but I'm not good at it. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. That's understandable. Um, that, yeah, that's okay. understandable. Well, 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 Lewis, um, we could talk forever because you just are so interesting. You have such an interesting background. Let me ask you about the sci-fi writers, though. Like, who is, like, the top, your favorite sci-fi writer? And is it a comic situation or are they novelists? Well, I'm going to tell you, my favorite sci-fi writers from back when I was a kid, when that book, you know, sort of, in the era when that book is being told, the story of that yeah, book, yeah. are mm-hmm. people like the British writer Michael Moorcock. I really okay. like Michael Moorcock a lot because he was the sci-fi writer, British writer, who took all of the like space and swords and all that wild stuff, but was also getting into some deep, abstract intellectual questions about evil and good and culture and different types of people interacting so I always say to myself that it's when I started reading Michael Moorcock is when I really got into reading literature 
that would lead me to college and graduate school, right? So Michael mm. Moorcock was very, very important as a sci-fi writer, and he was a novelist. He was a novelist. He was a novelist. Now, I, real yeah. quick, I read somewhere that you never wanted to be a professor, but you're a professor. You, you, I read that yeah. you wanted to go DJ in somewhere. So what's the deal? What, 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 why are you a professor now? <laughs> it just kind of happened. <laughs> <laughs> well, you still floating? Lewis, you're still floating. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, oh I, mean, my God. I, was, I was playing in bands and, and doing music and trying to write novels. And I thought yeah, that yeah, one yeah. day I would, write a great, I would write a great novel and I'd be also maybe do a hit record. And then neither of those things were happening. My skills at fiction turned out to be horrible. I'm good at nonfiction, <laughs> not fiction. Okay. So I, the novels just were terrible. And I was in all these bands and DJing these clubs that were all just pretty terrible. And so Mm-mm-mm. I didn't have all this great stuff happen to me as a writer, as a musician. So I just stayed on in school, and all the opportunities kept coming. Like, the, the, you know, when I was an undergrad, the director of the English department of the graduate studies said, hey, you're really smart, you know, you should come to our program and you should apply and I'll help you apply. I'd never, it never occurred to me to do that. So I did yeah. it because I needed, so I didn't, you know, I needed a job and I needed something to do. And I thought, okay, grad school, I could keep reading, keep writing books. Hopefully one of them will be good one day and I'll keep <laughs> DJing on the side and I'll figure something yeah, yeah. out. But okay. good opportunities kept coming to me in the academic world and that's how it happened. I'm glad that it happened that way because we got to read about your life and um, all the characters in your life, your uncle and, and your mom and the cousins and everything. So I, I really appreciate you opening up your life to us. Um, so thank you to all the professors that pushed you toward, you know, <laughs> writing non nonfiction. Um, but um, I, again, uh, I'm going to have to get some of that sweet and sour salmon. So if you like do like a, a what do you call it? FedEx, you could FedEx it to me. Uh, <laughs> I, I would appreciate that. Um, and, um, and, and a, a small packet of salt, uh, sugar, sorry, uh, from like a hotel, like a famous <laughs> hotel in Boston or something. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the questions, the conversations and the interest in the story as well as in the fish and sugar. <laughs> All right. You have a wonderful weekend, okay, Louis? All right. Thank you so much. I appreciate this. Bye. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I just got off the phone with author Louis Kusoke. Uh We were talking about his book, um, Floating in a Most Peculiar Way, a really, really interesting intellectual blurdy type of book. You guys will love it. I'm going to give away some copies of that. So I want to encourage you to follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys, so that you can win a copy of his book, um, Floating in the Most Peculiar Way. If you're a Bowie fan, you'll know what that means. Um, and there's a lot of other Bowie references uh, throughout the book, so um, you'll really appreciate it. Uh, again, follow on social media. And um, I want to encourage you guys to check out the other places you can listen, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. If you missed the beginning of this interview, you can check it out 
in about 15, 20 minutes or so to be archived um, on Blog Talk Radio as well as those other locations and other podcast locations. You can also donate to the show via PayPal, Saturdays with Joy Keys, and you can email me, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. Thank you so much again for listening to the show, sharing with friends, and your support. I really, really appreciate it. All right. Have a good weekend. Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.